What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. It's always been uncharted waters when it comes to Donald Trump, but now there's a literal flood. The lead starts right now. Right now, exclusive CNN reporting about a flood in the server room at Trump's Mar-a-Lago, the same servers storing the security surveillance video from Trump's resort. This as Mr. Trump's lawyers meet with Justice Department officials today. Then, come on in, the water's fine. The 2024 race set to grow by three more candidates as Governor Nikki Haley lands her sharpest blows yet on the Republican frontrunners Trump and DeSantis. Plus, military fighter jets going supersonic when a private plane doesn't respond while flying near the nation's capital. Now investigators are trying to figure out what went so horribly wrong. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Apologies for my voice. We start today with the law and justice lead and serious questions as to whether Donald Trump could face his first federal indictment ever. Today, lawyers for the former president met with Justice Department officials here in Washington for 90 minutes, a possible sign that special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into how Trump handled classified documents and whether he obstructed justice could be nearing its final stages, adding fuel to the speculation that Trump's about to face some legal consequence, is his own wild reaction on his social media site, Truth Social, where he wrote, quote, how can the Justice Department possibly charge me, who did nothing wrong, when no other presidents were charged, when Joe Biden won't be charged for anything? He goes on from there, but let's move on. Let's get right to CNN's Caitlin Palance. And Caitlin, you have some exclusive new insight into the special counsel's investigation especially as it concerns possible obstruction of justice. Tell us more. So, Jake, we have been hearing about this obstruction investigation and all of these questions about what happened to the boxes that were moved, what was captured on surveillance footage after the Justice Department started seeking it and started to track down where documents moved throughout Mar-a-Lago. And what I am learning and have confirmed uh, is that one of the things prosecutors are inquiring about is that there was a flood at Mar-a-Lago back October. Specifically, one of the men, uh, a maintenance worker who was captured on uh, some of this video surveillance tape helping to move some of the boxes in and out of that storage room, he drained the pool at Mar-a-Lago in October. Uh, And when that happened, it flooded a room and that room had IT equipment in it that had surveillance footage. And Mm. so we don't know. uh, And it's not clear if prosecutors believe that this flood was intentional. Uh, It could have been a mistake. But it is one of these things that adds into this constellation uh, of things that just are suspicious to prosecutors, have raised questions. Uh, And we do know, too, that prosecutors have received some testimony and some answers about what happened there. And some of the testimony is that uh, the video surveillance system wasn't damaged in this flood. But all of these questions are going back to, did Donald Trump give some sort of direction or did these people who were working for him, this maintenance worker and another man who was captured on tape moving boxes, Walt Nada, his body man, were they taking steps to inquire about the surveillance footage or want to sort of uh, screw up what the Justice Department was able to get as they were seeking evidence? Yeah, you're, you're giving me images of like the grandson of Rosemary Woods or something like that. Um, turning back to the uh, meeting between Trump's attorneys and the Justice Department, which happened earlier today, what might that signal 
about the timeline? At what point in a possible indictment do people, in an investigation with a possible indictment, do, do people meet with the lawyers for the suspect? Well, at the very least, it signals that Donald Trump's defense team uh, wants to have a come-to-Jesus moment with the Justice Department in some way, that they are afraid enough or uh, wanting to know exactly where the investigation stands at a point so that they can go in and talk to the main justice. Now, this meeting is a little bit different than other meetings that happen at the end of an investigation in that we know that the meetings, uh, the, the lawyers for Donald Trump asked for this meeting because they essentially have complaints about the special counsel, Jack Smith. And Jack Smith is not like any U.S. attorney. He's able to make his own charging decisions separate from the attorney general. But that meeting today, uh, it is a big moment in an investigation that has signaled that it's nearing its end. We do, though, think that there is going to be uh, a little bit more testimony at some part of this investigation. What we were able to confirm um, just a few minutes ago was that a grand jury in South Florida is expected to hear from a witness this week. It's not totally clear how that fits into the rest of the investigation. This is part of that investigation, a grand jury in South Florida? Uh, yes, we believe so, that it is someone that is in one of Donald Trump's circles that would have some sort of uh, insight into the documents investigation, and it does involve uh, at least one prosecutor that's been working with the special counsel's office. Fascinating stuff. Caitlin Plain, stay here. I want to bring in also CNN legal analyst Carrie Cordero and former principal deputy assistant attorney general Tom Dupree. Uh, Tom, what do you make of this news of this flood in the server room, in the middle of an obstruction investigation, do you think it's suspicious? What do you think this meeting between Trump and uh, Trump's lawyers and the DOJ mean? Those are two different questions. Let's start with the, my Rosemary Woods reference. Uh, for I, people who don't know, she accidentally uh, erased tapes uh, of the Nixon White House. I, I got it. In the I knew you get it. The I analogy was aft, Jake. I mean, that's exactly what it is potentially. I mean, look, we need to know more. We need to know whether or not this alleged flood actually wiped out the surveillance video. If it did, yes, it's significant. Yes, it would be an astronomical coincidence if it happened. But we don't know that for sure yet. So I guess I would reserve judgment as to how much significance sure, to ascribe. But is it suspicious? Yes. Today's DOJ meeting, to me, is very significant. It tells me that we are nearing the end of the special counsel's investigation. We thought we were nearing the end for a long time. I think this is a signal that, at least from the Trump defense team's perspective, this may be their last clear chance to try to head off a federal indictment. They went in. They alleged prosecutorial misconduct. I'm not sure that was the right strategy. I suspect that appeal is going to fall on deaf ears before this special counsel. But it does signal that they realize they are in the endgame. They've apparently advised their client. We saw former President Trump tweet he expects a potential indictment soon. So I think we're all realizing and recognizing that we're getting close to the end of the line here. And Kerry, let me just ask you, President Trump posting on Truth Social that all caps unhinged rant per use, uh, asking how could the DOJ come after me? Um, do you think that he is about to be indicted. I mean, if reading the tea leaves, following this guy, as we all have since 2015, if not before, I mean, what does it say to you? Well, it's hard to say the, the reasons for and the timing for when he posts things. Um, but it is possible that his lawyers went into the Justice Department in part at his request to see if they could learn any more information mm. from the prosecutorial team about what might be coming. So they went in, they made their case, they made their allegations about prosecutorial misconduct, but it also was an opportunity for them to listen and to hear if there's anything new that they could hear from Justice Department that they didn't know before and that they could tell him about. So, Caitlin, can you tell us where this flood is in the timeline of this investigation? 
Right. It seems like it might be important. Yeah. So it happens in October of last year. And so at that point in time, there had already been uh, the subpoena for documents, return them all. Uh, the room where the documents were kept, or at least where Evan Corcoran, Donald Trump's defense attorney, believed all of the White House records were kept. He had already gone through the room, turned over what he found, and then the FBI went in to search Mar-a-Lago. And so this happens after the FBI search in August, about two months after. One would think when we were initially looking into this, uh, it, it was it was why after, why after? But then one of the things that appears to have caught prosecutors' attention here is that there were repeated subpoenas and requests from the Justice Department pertaining to this surveillance footage, even after that search in August. And so not only uh, were other documents being recovered after the search and they were getting access to this surveillance footage, we know that at the end of August, or uh, I'm sorry, at the end of October... When the flood was, yeah. When the flood was, that was a point in time where the Justice Department came back in and asked again for the Trump organization to preserve all of the surveillance footage. Now, we don't know if these... These men uh, who were captured on the tape moving the boxes, how much they knew about those requests, but they certainly were uh, interested in the surveillance footage. And, and Tom, the grand jury is expected to hear testimony this week from another witness, uh, as Caitlin said, in the probe into Trump's handling of classified documents, the first known sign of activity from this grand jury uh, in a month. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, I mean, it tells me that Jack Smith is still, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's. Uh, he clearly has identified one additional witness who apparently has something sufficiently important to say that he's willing to go back before the grand jury and put it in. That said, we have seen, I think, a, a slowing of the pace uh, of the Smith investigation in terms of new witnesses he's reaching out to. We've seen he's doing the kind of the classic pyramid where he's going to more and more senior people. Again, all of which points in the same direction, that we are much closer to the end of this process than we are to the beginning, but it's still not finished. I mean, look, the fact that the Trump lawyers are meeting with him, the fact that he's still bringing witnesses before the grand jury doesn't suggest that the cake is totally baked, but it's pretty far baked at this point. And, and Carrie, we, we don't know, speaking of working your way up the pyramid, we still don't know if Trump's um, former chief of staff at the White House, Mark Meadows, who knows a lot, mm-hmm. theoretically, uh, if he has been interviewed uh, by the special counsel, Jack Smith, but he could be a key witness. What, what information could he offer in this investigation? And, and don't you think by now it's likely that he's talked Well, Mark Meadows is a critical figure with respect to investigations across the board. Remember, Jack Smith, the special counsel's investigative team is looking not only at the classified documents investigation and the associated obstruction piece of that, but really the January 6th piece. And that's where I think Mark Meadows has the most to offer the Justice Department in terms of the January 6th investigation itself. He certainly was there. He was present. He uh, is a key figure in this who uh, I think is on the public side, we don't know a lot, which reveals to me that probably on the investigative side, um, there's more information that that he has or has the ability to provide. And meanwhile, Trump's running for president. Um, and, and the special counsel, Jack Smith, he's got to be obviously aware of this. And I mean, It'd be nice to think like, well, that's not going to play any any role, but it has to, right? I mean, Jake, this is the reason that Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel because Donald Trump was a candidate for president and very made very clear he was running for president and that this could be one of those issues uh, where the department wanted to have a special counsel 
to have a little bit of distance politically so that the special counsel could make his own decision. Now, of course, when we have seen uh, Donald Trump's attorneys put a letter out publicly to the Justice Department saying they wanted to have this meeting that they had today, they made clear that they do believe that this is something that uh, the department should stand down on because Donald Trump is running for president, that they believe that it could be perceived as a political investigation. And they've certainly said that over and over again. Uh, But the Department of Justice, uh, I'm sure you both would say, makes its decisions based on the facts, uh, follows the facts. And we do talk about a quiet period that they go into for bringing overt steps in investigation, including indictments. But that period is actually pretty short. It would occur before the primaries, but it would be about two months or so if they're going to observe it. Yeah, but those are coming up. I mean, the first debate is in two months. It's in August, the Republican primary debate. The first primaries, the Iowa caucuses, no official date yet, but it's in January. That's just seven months away. I mean, how would that affect his schedule? Uh, Look, I, I think we're going to see, I mean, as with so many things in the, the Trump era, we are going to be seeing a first in American history. I think we're going to see a presidential campaign unfurling at the same time that one of the leading candidates is in all likelihood under federal indictment. That's what's going to happen here. From what we've seen, it may not slow Trump down. I mean, he may do the ultimate in compartmentalization and, you know, fighting off criminal charges on one hand, running for president on the other hand. I mean, will it affect the race? To be determined. So far, it hasn't really seemed to have that dramatic effect on his base. The former president, in some strange way, seems to draw strength from all of this. But it will be uncharted territory. And the idea of you know, running for president at the same time you're trying to keep yourself out of prison is a challenge uh, and will be a first. I don't, just with all due respect, I don't think it's going to be compartmentalization. I think he's going to absorb it as, as look at what they're doing to me, then they're coming after you. Yeah. Every court yeah. appearance, also a political appearance. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Tom Dupree, Kerry Cordero, Caitlin Plants, thank you so much. As Donald Trump faces these new legal problems, more political rivals are lining up to challenge him, including officially now his own former vice president, speaking of unprecedented. Plus, Ukraine's new weapon, how sabotage agents could help in its attacks on Russia's side of the border. Stay with us. Cue the music. There it is, the election music. Love it. Only two months until the first Republican presidential debate. Seven months until the first in the nation Iowa caucuses. And today, former Vice President Mike Pence formally entered the presidential race to run against his former boss before all the fanfare planned for later this week, including a speech and a CNN town hall with my colleague Dana Bash. Today, he quietly fired, filed his paperwork declaring his candidacy. Last night, of course, the spotlight was on CNN's town hall with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Trump's former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. CNN's Jeff Zeleny takes a look now at what is bound to be a very busy week in the 2024 race. The Republican presidential contest is expanding and intensifying. We've let guys do it for a while. It might be time for a woman to get it done. As the anyone but Trump lane grows even more crowded this week with former Vice President Mike Pence, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum set to join the race. Thank you. As these rivals open their campaigns, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is sharpening her differences, telling Iowa voters at a CNN town hall Sunday night that former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have not been straight with voters about the viability of Social Security. I know that Trump and DeSantis have both said we're not going to deal with entitlement reform. Well, all you're doing is leaving it for the next president, and that's leaving a lot of Americans in trouble. Haley took particular aim at DeSantis in hopes of slowing his rise by blasting Florida's legal battle with Disney as hypocritical. He went and basically gave the highest corporate subsidies in Florida history to Disney. But because they went and criticized him, 
Now he's going to spend taxpayer dollars on a lawsuit. Haley's competition is multiplying, with Pence formally filing his paperwork today, ahead of a formal announcement in Iowa. We still have so many good friends here. Christie is set to declare Tuesday in New Hampshire. And Burgum, a businessman turned governor, introducing himself in a new video. Anger, yelling, infighting, that's not going to cut it anymore. Let's get things done. Today, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu making a different decision, telling CNN's Dana Bash he would not seek the GOP presidential nomination. I don't mind who gets into the field, but given where the polls are right now, every candidate needs to understand the responsibility of getting out and getting out quickly if it's not working. The former president looms large over the race, the biggest clear beneficiary of a bigger field, as the contenders work to distinguish themselves in hopes of a one-on-one contest with him. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott stopped by The View today on ABC for a face-to-face conversation about race and opportunity in America. One of the reasons why I'm on the show is because of the comments that were made, frankly, on this show, that the only way for a young African-American kid to be successful in this country is to be the exception and not the rule. That is a dangerous, offensive, disgusting message to send to our young people today. And this is a very busy week of this 2024 campaign. You can feel the intensity uh, increasing. And Chris Christie will be getting in tomorrow in New Hampshire in a town hall at St. Anselm College. But, Jake, we're getting a new, uh, some new sentiment from the former president about his former vice president. We should point out this is a historic uh, moment here, a vice president running against a former president, never mind the acrimony between them. But he oddly has some kind words for him. The former president says this, I wish him a lot of luck. He's a nice person. We had a very good relationship until the very end. And then he goes on to repeat the lies about how the former vice president could have overturned and not certified the election. So clearly, a couple years have gone by. It's the same song between the two. But the question is, what is Mike Pence's lane? Uh, Talking to a lot of Republican voters in Iowa, where we both spent the weekend, uh, it's clear that uh, some are interested in his message, message of a fiscal conservatism. Evangelicals are interested in him. But it's a pretty narrow lane. Of course, so many Trump supporters are opposed to his candidacy. But he was received very warmly this weekend in Iowa. So we will see. That's why he's obviously starting his race there um, on Wednesday. Yeah, Trump's been pretty uh, nice and welcoming about everybody going into the race except for Ron DeSantis. And the reason is a big field benefits Trump. Yeah, I think I've seen that movie before. For sure. Jeff Zellamy, thanks so much. Tune in Wednesday night. My colleague Dana Bash will moderate the CNN Republican Presidential Town Hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. Again, in beautiful Iowa. That's Wednesday night at 9 Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, will competition spark conflict with China? An exclusive interview with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. That's next. In our world lead, pictures hoping to silence a thousand words. The message here from Ukraine's military is a plea for silence around its long-awaited counteroffensive against Russian forces. Officials are discouraging public speculation or social media posts, saying it could only help the Russian enemy. The chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff tells CNN that Ukraine is very well prepared for that counteroffensive, but it's still too early to tell what the outcome might be. Army General Mark Milley spoke exclusively with CNN Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman in Normandy, France, where the general, who's about to finish his term as Joint Chiefs Chairman, is marking the 79th anniversary of D-Day. General Mark Milley in Normandy, marking the beginning of the largest counteroffensive in modern European history as the world waits for another counteroffensive in Ukraine. I think the Ukrainians are very well prepared. As you know very well, the United States and other allied countries in Europe and really around the world have provided training and ammunition and advice 
uh, intelligence, et cetera, to the Ukrainians. We're supporting them. Uh, they're in a, a war that's an existential threat for the very survival of Ukraine. Uh, and it has greater meaning to the rest of the world. Ukraine and its agents have carried out a number of attacks inside Russia, including a drone attack in Moscow. U.S. officials have exclusively told CNN was part of a complex network of saboteurs inside Russia. In any war, there's, there's, there's risk. There's always risk. Uh, there's risk of uh, escalation clearly in this particular case. Uh, so we'll have to watch that uh, very, very carefully. If Russia escalates against Ukraine, uh, then that's part of the give and take of war. Milley also spoke about the tension with China just days after a Chinese warship cut off a U.S. Navy vessel in the Taiwan Strait at a distance of 150 yards, dangerously close. Both countries are significant powers, great powers if you want to call it that. Uh, in the world today, both countries have significant amounts of nuclear weapons. They've got large and capable militaries. Uh, so a conflict between great powers. Arguably, we're in, for sure, we're in competition and arguably we're in confrontation, but we're not yet in conflict. Milley says communication with Beijing is key to avoid conflict. And I personally don't think that war between China and the United States is inevitable. Uh, I don't think it's imminent, uh, but it needs to stay in a, st a status of competition. Uh, in order to do that, countries have to talk to each other. And in times of crisis, it's necessary to de-escalate. But at a defense conference in Singapore last week, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin only shook hands with his Chinese counterpart, who refused a formal meeting. Milley hasn't spoken to his counterpart in nearly eight months. I have not had an opportunity to talk to my counterpart. I talked to my previous counterpart. We've sent out messages, and they've sent messages back and forth. So there are some communications going back and forth, but... Uh, we would like to have an opportunity to, to talk, and I think they would like to have an opportunity to talk. Back in Washington, Milley says he spoke with Senator Tommy Tuberville over a one-man blockade on the nomination of more than 200 general officers, a number that could triple by the end of summer and affect military readiness. It's a large number, and, uh, and, and then you figure that each one is to replace somebody else, and somebody's going to replace them, so you multiply it by three. So you're really looking at potentially somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 officers are impacted, then most of them are married, so, they, so now you're looking at about another 4,000 family members. This could be a backup of the whole system, it sounds like. It will be a backup of the whole system. It is becoming a backup of the whole system. In congressional hearings, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs has repeatedly defended the department against accusations of being too woke, an issue he says is exaggerated. We're about fighting and winning on battlefields, uh, and we're all about readiness. Uh, we're all about readiness now and readiness in the future and modernization. I think the accusations of woke are, are, are grossly over-exaggerated. Millie will mark 44 years in the service this month. Of course, it'll be the last four of those that are the most highly scrutinized, a position that has given him the ear of the president on key issues like Ukraine and Afghanistan, but also made him put him in the crosshairs of criticism in the attacks on the Defense Department. Jake, it is worth pointing out that back to China for a second, the White House has doubled down on its criticism of Chinese encounters between the U.S. and the Chinese military here, saying they were unsafe and unprofessional, calling on China to act better and behave better in international airspace and along international waterways. Still, the White House says they are making some progress in trying to reopen and reestablish some of those lines of communication. Yeah, and we'll have more on that near miss uh, on the water uh, later in the show. Oren Lieberman in Normandy, France, thank you so much. With me now to discuss, Republican Congressman Brad Wenstrup of Ohio and Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado. They're both veterans, and they are here to talk about their bipartisan bill to help Afghan nationals who were employed on behalf of the U.S. military during the 20-year war there and are still living in constant danger under the Taliban. Before I do get to that, though, I want to ask you both about what we just heard from General Milley about Ukraine. 
Uh, do you think they're ready for this long promise counteroffensive? Let me start with uh, Congressman Wenstrup because he outranks you, uh, uh, Captain Crow. Colonel, please. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it would appear that they are ready in many ways, and I'll, and I'll go to one in particular. They have the will for this. You know, the people in Ukraine know what freedom looked like, and they do not want it taken away. Whereas the Russian military is in a different situation. And I don't think it's even that popular within the Russian uh, populace as it is. So that's the, one of the advantages for the Ukrainians going in. Look, what, ma- what goes on in Ukraine does matter, and China is watching every bit of this, and so it's important. But what we want to see from the United States and European allies in particular is, what is our aid doing? How are we trying to help put an end to this so that Ukraine can be a sovereign nation once again? And Congressman Crow, let me ask you, CNN has also learned that Ukraine has cultivated sabotage agents inside Russia and is giving those sabotage agents drones to stage attract, attacks. Uh, what do you make of that? Does that increase the danger of this war expanding or even drawing in NATO nations? Well, I couldn't agree more with my friend Brad. Uh, You better believe the Ukrainians are ready. They have the grit, the will, the determination to fight uh, in the way that somebody who is always fighting for their children, for their home, for their neighborhoods, will always fight with all of their strength and their will. Uh, So the Russians actually have uh, something really in store for them, and I would encourage the Russian soldiers to lay down their arms and return home, uh, or at least leave the battlefield, because this is not a fight that they should be fighting. And listen, we have always been clear as the United States that we are going to give them the equipment, uh, the training, the resources to fight. But this is the Ukrainians' fight. They know how to take this fight to the battlefield, to the Russians. Uh, They know how to to spread the Russians out. They know how to strike deep. Uh, They are not going to use U.S. munitions to do so. They have respected our request to avoid doing that. And there's no reason to believe that they will uh, not continue to respect that. Uh, So the Ukrainians are doing exactly what they need to do. Congressman uh, Wenstrup, turning to your new bill, the Afghan Allies Protection Act, this, this would ex- uh, extend the Afghan Special Immigrant Visa Program by five years. It would provide an eligibility exemption uh, for those injured or killed in the line of duty and authorize an additional 20,000 special immigrant visas. It extends and expands a program already in place. How urgent is this need, do you think? Oh, I think it's very urgent. I think it's actually uh, later than we would like because uh, you have so many people, as you mentioned, that are waiting to hear. This is a promise that we made as America, that you work with us and you will have the opportunity, if you fulfill all the guidelines, to come to the United States. I know that I engaged with two of, of my interpreters that are now in the United States, both U.S. citizens, both practicing physicians in the United States of America. This is who we have waiting to come into the United States of America, people that want to be Americans and want to do what they can for this country. And they already did it just the same way as our troops did. Congressman Crow, what about the backlog uh, at the U.S. State Department on this? Uh, Is there pressure that needs to be put on Secretary Blinken and President Biden on this? Well, Jake, Brad is absolutely right. This this bill has to pass. This is a bipartisan and bicameral bill. So Brad and I in the House, uh, Senators Shaheen and and Wicker uh, on the Senate side. But the backlog is an essential part of this. We have tens of thousands of Afghan partners who fought with us, who got injured with us, some of whom were killed fighting right beside uh, our friends. Uh, I may not be here today if it hadn't been for some of those translators and interpreters who fought uh, with us and and sacrificed so much. So we have to get this done. And this bill not only expands the number of visas, because we've almost exhausted the number of visas, but it streamlines the process. 
It allows for remote processing because uh, we don't have an embassy in, uh, in Afghanistan anymore. And it allows for other really critical ways to, to cut bureaucratic red tape and bring these people to the United States so they can start their new lives. So, Congressman Wenstrup, this is a companion bill, uh, as you noted, to the one introduced on the other side of Capitol Hill uh, by Senator uh, Roger Wicker and Senator Gene Shaheen. Uh, as you know, uh, the, an effort to include something like this in the omnibus spending bill uh, was held up uh, by Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, Republican of Iowa. He raised objections over what he says are lax criteria for special immigrant visa program eligibility. I don't know what his position is going to be on your legislation here, um, but does he need to be pushed? Can you get him to stop obstructing this? Well, we have to talk to any of those that don't quite understand what we understand. You know, it's easy for someone who hasn't been there that doesn't fully appreciate uh, what actually takes place in war and how these are people that are loyal to the United States of America and that we need to fulfill our promises. And that's a big part of it. America has got to be a country that fulfills its promises, especially when they're helping us during war. And that should be the number one priority for people that maybe don't think it's the greatest program in many ways. It is a great program because these are people that deserve what they have earned. Congressman Brad Wenstrup and Jason Crow, thank you so much for your service. Thanks for being here and thanks for for pushing for this. It's a very important piece of legislation that we talk about a lot on the show. Thank you. Thank you. A deadly mid-air mystery military jets are scrambled when the pilot of a private plane does not respond while flying near the nation's capital and then crashes. Stay with us. In our national lead, that was the sonic boom that rattled many people and Pets around Virginia and Washington, D.C. on Sunday afternoon. The sound was caused by F-16 military jets that rushed to try to intercept a private plane before that plane crashed into a rural area of central Virginia, just west of Charlottesville. All four people on board the plane were killed in the crash. CNN's Brian Todd is live for us in Vesuvius, Virginia, a few miles away from the crash site. Brian, do we know anything about who was on the plane? Jake, there's information that at least two members of one family that owns a company called Encore Motors in Florida were on board that plane along with a nanny and the pilot who's not yet been named. This afternoon, we also have new information on the flight's path, the military response to it, and what investigators are coming through at the crash site. Tonight, the wreckage has been found of a private jet that crashed in Virginia after flying hundreds of miles past its destination. But the reasons remain unclear for the mystery flight that passed right over the D.C. area and prompted fighter jets to scramble. Investigators describe highly fragmented wreckage in very mountainous terrain. The airplane, the engines, the weather conditions, pilot qualifications, the maintenance records, all aspects will be, uh, of course, items that we routinely look at. The flight path shows a takeoff from Tennessee. At its destination on New York's Long Island, the plane turns but doesn't land. Instead, it keeps flying at 34,000 feet, right into highly restrictive airspace near Washington, D.C. The Capitol briefly placed on an elevated alert, and Air National Guard pilots scrambled to intercept, causing a sonic boom heard around the beltway. But NORAD says the pilots got no response to flybys, flares, or radio calls. National Guard fighter on guard. If you hear this transmission, contact us. Authorities say the plane was not shot down, but if it appeared to be a threat. They do have the ability 
to shoot down a civilian aircraft if that is required. The plane was tracked until it crashed into the mountains of central Virginia. There were four people on board. Among the possible causes... It's rare, but it happens, that uh, a jet aircraft like this will gradually lose pressurization, which will incapacitate the captain and the passengers. They might not be aware of it. And then all of a sudden, it creeps up on you, and you are going to sleep, and there's no waking up. First responders telling CNN there were no survivors, just a crater and small debris fragments and signs of human remains. Very hard to get to, um, a lot of un uh, overgrowth, and they, they had areas where they actually had to get on their hands and knees and crawl to get under the brush to get into it. It's going to be very difficult to recover certainly ever any avionics or, or any important uh, wreckage information. For the victims on the plane, you won't be able to tell whether they had any signs of oxygen deprivation. And we have new information just in from our colleague Pete Montine, citing a source familiar with the military response to this incident, saying that the pilot was observed slumped over his seat during the course of this flight. Investigators now looking at hypoxia as a possible major factor in this hypoxia, a condition that causes pilots to become unconscious if they're not wearing oxygen masks at a certain height. Jake? Brian, do, do planes this small have black boxes? And if so, are investigators looking for one? We're told, Jake, that investigators are at the site looking for black boxes. The problem here is that this particular jet is not required to have a black box. Some of them are outfitted with it anyway. Obviously, if they can find something like that, it will be invaluable in this investigation. All right, Brian Todd in Vesuvius, Virginia, thank you so much. The plans to finally move the key suspect in the Natalie Holloway disappearance here to the United States. That's next. In our world lead, rescuers found at least one survivor days after one of the deadliest train accidents in the history of India. At least 275 people were killed, more than <coughs> 1,000 others injured. A high-speed train on Friday was diverted off its track and right into the path of a parked cargo train. CNN's Ivan Watson is near the crash scene where the investigation not only focuses on how the mistake happened, but who might be responsible. This is what happens when a passenger train moving at 80 miles per hour, that's around 128 kilometers per hour, slams into an immovable object. You get enormous train cars like this thrown over, overturned as if they were children's toys. Now, just days ago, this was the scene of one of the deadliest train disasters in modern Indian history. And already the railroad has been reopened and we can see what looks like a brand new modern train moving down the tracks here. That is even as scores of people are still looking for their missing loved ones from the accident that took place on Friday night. Now the initial accident authorities say was caused by a switching malfunction. So a passenger train was moved onto a track where there was a parked freight train loaded with iron ore and that crash sent some of the train cars into the other track where there was an approaching passenger train coming from the other side. So that mistake led to absolutely catastrophic results. As you can see, the railroad here has been reopened. We have another train moving through right now. 
And the railroad system in India, it dates back in origins to when this country was a British colony. And it is essential to this country. More than 13 million people a day move around on trains in India. So that's part of why the authorities have worked so hard to reopen the rails after the train crash. I'm going to show you over here. This is an example of a railroad station in the Indian countryside. Uh, and it also happens to be just within sight, if you see the lights down there, of where the terrible train crash happened on Friday night. The very next day, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, he was supposed to go inaugurate a brand new high-speed train. Instead, he had to rush to the crash to survey the recovery efforts and to meet with some of the survivors. The Indian government has great ambitions to modernize this country. But as this terrible tragedy has highlighted, there's also a lot of work to be done to maintain aging and essential infrastructure. Ivan Watson, CNN, in Orisha State, in Eastern India. And our thanks to Ivan Watson for that report. Also in our world lead, Johan Vandersloot, the prime suspect in the disappearance of Alabama teenager Natalie Holloway, will be temporarily handed over to the U.S. government on Thursday. Vandersloot is set to stand trial in the U.S. on extortion and fraud charges related to an alleged plot to extort the Holloways after their daughter's disappearance in Aruba in 2005. Over the weekend, Vandersloot was transferred from a maximum security prison in southern Peru to a prison in Lima, where he will stay until he's handed over to the U.S. government on Thursday. Vandersloot was already in that prison because he was convicted in 2012 of murdering a different 21-year-old woman in his hotel room. Coming up, a look at the Democratic presidential candidate who is polling well above 10%. That's higher than Ron DeSantis on the Republican side. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, will reality bite for Apple? Apple just unveiled a new virtual reality headset that costs thousands of dollars. The question, of course, what will people be using it for and who's going to pay $3,000? Plus, new CNN reporting about a pool being drained at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in a flooded server room. Why this flood is now playing a part in the special counsel investigation into Mr. Trump's handling of classified documents. And leading this hour, a very busy week in the 2024 presidential race. Today, former Vice President Mike Pence filed paperwork to officially declare his candidacy. Tomorrow, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is also expected to jump into the race. This comes just hours after another candidate, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, broke with the GOP frontrunners, Trump and Ron DeSantis, during a CNN town hall that I moderated last night. Let's bring in CNN political director David Chalian. David how much will the next few days change the race for the Republican nomination, do you think? Well, listen, if you are not named Trump, th- that means that, you know, maybe uh, half to two thirds of the party is available potentially to you. And what is happening as the field expands, Jake, with each of these candidates getting is they're going to have to thin that stuff pretty, sl- uh, pretty thinly. They're going to have to slice it pretty thinly. And so uh, that is what affects the dynamic of the race. But each candidate uh, is worth looking at in their own right. I mean, Mike Pence announcing for president today, I mean, that is a historic move. A vice president who served loyally for four years, taking on uh, the, the, the president under whom he served, his former running mate, where he famously broke with him uh, in the aftermath of January 6th. It just sets up an incredible dynamic that we haven't seen anything like it. And David, another Republican who was expected to enter the race, or people at least 
thought he might. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu told CNN today he's decided not to run. Why? Well, he says that although he saw a path for victory, which I think usually people that really see a path for victory end up doing this, but that he saw a path for victory, but that he thought his role uh, could be better played in uh, – expressing support for someone else and exerting pressure as the New Hampshire governor throughout this process, uh, taking on Donald Trump, who he clearly doesn't want to be the nominee. He sat down exclusively with our Dana Bash and explained more of his thinking this way. The math has shown Donald Trump has no chance of winning in November of 24. He wouldn't even win Georgia. If you're a Republican that can't win Georgia of November 24, you have no shot. And he's proven that. If Republicans nominate him, then we're saying a vote for him in the, in the primary is effectively a vote for, for Joe Biden. I mean, that's ultimately how the math will play out. That's his assessment of the math, Jake. I mean, one other thing to think about here, of course, is that the New Hampshire primary itself, uh, now with the governor out, will become a more important contest because you don't have a hometown player in the race. Very interesting. David, stick around. Uh, let's talk about the Democratic side in our 2024 lead right now. I don't think we're in Camelot anymore, but Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Son of Attorney General Robert Kennedy, an environmental activist and uh, turned anti-vaccine conspiracy theorist, uh, today sat down for an interview with none other than Elon Musk as Kennedy challenges President Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. If you ask questions about vaccines, you are a Trump Republican. And if you uh, if you had a just a religious belief in their efficacy and safety that could not be questioned, you were a Democrat. And so I watched that all happen, all that play out and watched the Democrats slowly become these pro-corporate, pro-war, pro-censorship Republicans, uh, you know, what, what had once been Republicans. Kennedy has thrown his hat into the ring to challenge President Biden in the Democratic primary process. No incumbent president has ever been defeated in his party's primary since the 19th century, but 69-year-old RFK Jr. has a surprising amount of support. A recent CNN poll shows that among Democratic and likely Democratic voters, he's polling at 20 percent over President uh, Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. Joe Biden is at 60 percent. 20 percent is about as high as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is polling in the Republican primary, despite a fraction of the media coverage and advertising for Kennedy. How? Well, his alarmist conspiracy theory messaging has given him a platform on anti-establishment podcasts and conservative media, including today's talk with Elon Musk uh, on Twitter. For years, Kennedy has pushed back on medical experts and scientific consensus who widely agree that the broad application of childhood vaccines helps prevent the spread of disease and has no ties to autism. But he has spread, Kennedy, these lies tying childhood vaccines to autism. In May of 2019, two of Kennedy's siblings and his niece wrote an op-ed in Politico titled, RFK Jr. is our brother and uncle. He's tragically wrong about vaccines. This is before COVID, of course. The next month, Kennedy met with a prominent anti-vaccine activist in Samoa, where vaccine fears run rampant. And later that year, a deadly measles outbreak shut down that island and claimed dozens of lives, many of them children. During the pandemic, of course, of COVID pandemic, Kennedy likened Dr. Anthony Fauci to Hitler. He said it was easier for Anne Frank to hide from Nazis than for Americans to escape vaccine mandates. Even in Hitler, Germany, you could, you could cross the Alps into Switzerland. You can hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. To that, his nephew, former Congressman Joe Kennedy III, told us this. The, the comments were abhorrent, um, and they're horrifying, and they're wrong. Uh, full stop. All right. They're painful to hear. Um, 
you know, he's my uncle and we love our family. Um, but these comments, he needs to stop. After a tidal wave of backlash, RFK Jr. did eventually apologize for that comment. His Instagram account had been removed in 2021 for spreading constant misinformation about COVID vaccines. It was restored yesterday because he is now an active candidate for president of the United States. Let's discuss um, Naira, for voters who may know, uh, for, or for voters who might not care about the vaccine stuff uh, or the childhood vaccine quackery that he's been engaged in, I could see why Kennedy might be an attractive candidate. He is articulate. He was a crusading environmental lawyer. He looks exactly like his dad. Uh, there is a mystique to the Kennedy family. Uh, what do you think? Should the DNC be paying more of attention, more attention? It, it is fascinating that with the Kennedy name, he is trying to run as an anti-establishment candidate. <laughs> you are seeing online commentary about how the establishment came for his dad and his uncle. Therefore, he is also being silenced by media. And it's, it makes sense with that narrative that he's connecting with Elon Musk, one of the richest men in the world, who in their conversation together both disparage corporate America. So they are appealing to this deep left horseshoe where the right meets left, younger generation, uh, anti-pro-conspiracy theory group, anti-expertise that unfortunately does not have a place in the Democratic Party primary uh, Mm. sequence, right? You have South Carolina black voters, Nevada, Hispanic working class voters. That is not something that Robert Kennedy has any appeal to. And there is an interesting dynamic here, which is that, look, he was his anti his his position on childhood vaccines is so wrong and offensive that it's that it's diff- I'm, I regretted even talking about him. But look, he's a he's a force right now. Uh, and there are a lot of people right now who are skeptical about the covid vaccines. They feel that the, the government hasn't been fully transparent, et cetera. I mean, we could go through the efficacy and accuracy of those claims. But regardless of I mean, I don't think they're right, but there is an audience to hear that. No doubt about it. You noted some of the places he's going to deliver that message. And then you wonder, well, where's the Venn diagram overlap with Democratic primary voters? He is at 20 percent in the polls. And we saw in that poll that you showed, Jake, if you look inside, Biden has support among the tried and true Democrats. But the Democratic leaning independents in that poll are the ones where Kennedy is getting a bit more of that support that's driving up his numbers overall to 20 percent. In fact, today, I think he did an interview with Michael Smirkanish on the radio, and he was going after Biden uh, for not even uh, likely to show up in New Hampshire, Iowa, the rejuggling of the Democratic primary calendar that he only wants to play it safe in South Carolina. So he's not afraid to sort of go politically at the president. You said, should the DNC pay more attention? I mean, the DNC and the RNC as organizations have long been sort of incumbent protection organizations for sitting presidents. And that's clearly what the DNC is going to try to do. Yeah, this time. I just want to push back on one thing. I agree with you entirely about how his anti-vax stuff is outrageous and gross. But when you when you phrase it as putting that aside, you can see his appeal. He was also an election denier in 2004. 2004, absolutely. He, he completely lied about all that kind of stuff. He has these conspiracy theories about how Sirhan Sirhan didn't kill his father. He's a complete nutter. And were it not for his name and his family wealth, he would be much better placed as the angry owner of a used bookstore named Ashbury. He is a total crank. And I think that this is all basically significant because of name ID and because of general discontent among voters who want an alter- Democratic voters who want an alternative to uh, Joe Biden. The problem is, you guys are absolutely right, not, the people who want the alternative to Joe Biden that really like RFK 
aren't like likely primary voters. Right. And so I think this is going to, it's dramatic, it's interesting, but I don't think it's going to pan out. I was just trying to explain why 20% of sure. the polls, not that I disagree with anything. No, you're totally say. in on the Sirhan Sirhan <laughs> thing. <laughs> that, yeah, well, anyway, um, Sarah, <laughs> let me ask you about this Instagram thing, because um, he had an Instagram account and it was taken down because of all the lies he was saying about vaccines. And look, People have every right to, to question, you know, what medical authorities are saying. He says things that just aren't true, that are demonstrably false. He had two. He had an article in Salon.com and Rolling Stone about childhood vaccines that both publications had to retract and take down because it was so false. Um, but why would Instagram reinstate his account? Especially because he did explicitly violate its policies around COVID misinformation. Instagram spokesperson told me today that the reason they did it is because he's a contender for 2024. And so basically Instagram is saying, look, we believe that politicians' speech should be treated differently than everyday people because people have the right to hear what their politicians are going to say. Whether you agree with that or not, that's their policy. And it's worth noting, Jake, they're not the only ones. YouTube said last week that it was going to roll back some of its policies around election denialism, meaning it would allow that kind of speech on the platform. Because, you know, the Republican Party has a lot of candidates right now who are putting that forward as their platform. And they also don't want to be having to be the ones that are pulling people away from hearing their politicians. So this is a big trend in big tech and sort of letting people spew misinformation for the sake of giving people a platform. Yeah, I mean, it's just I, I don't know where you draw that line, because, I mean, what happens if a candidate just starts denying the Holocaust? I mean, what? it's a very sticky line. Now, what some experts would tell you is that we have always given politicians sort of free speech, free reign on broadcast. Remember, you're not allowed to censor broadcast ads and really technically fact check them or change them. And so that's sort of the policy that a lot of folks are pointing to. Now, where is the line? We do have some certain lines, but on the internet, there's no regulators. And so the lines belong to the platforms and they can put them wherever they want. In the internet, no one can hear you scream. Let's talk about the Republican uh, nomination process. Uh, Joan, I want to get your reaction to one of uh, former Governor Nikki Haley's most direct attacks last night at our town hall. Uh, on Ron DeSantis. She went after Trump on a number of things, but also uh, DeSantis. This is what she had to say about Disney. Look, it's the hypocrisy of the whole thing. So here you have DeSantis, who accepted 50,000 in political contributions from Disney. He went and put their executives and their lobbyists on prominent boards throughout Florida. Because they went and criticized him, now he's going to spend taxpayer dollars on a lawsuit. It's just like all this vendetta stuff. We've been down that road again. We can't go down that. And we should note that she, she said she agreed with the legislation in question that Disney had spoken up against. But she's just basically saying that the government shouldn't be punishing companies for it. Well, and she's right. You know, and I, and I do think this speaks to, I mean, it gets too weedy to get into details. But I've always had the view that Ron DeSantis did not actually intend to fall into this war with Disney. I think he um, saw that the Twitter mobs were going in a certain direction and he had to Ferris Bueller himself and get out in front right. and say he was leading the parade. Right. Um, and, that, and so we see, because normally, you can look it up, Florida governors don't like to declare war on Disney, <laughs> right? So he got kind of backed into this mess. And, um, and, you know, and that, that soundbite was also a very veiled, but also a swipe at, at Donald Trump, this retribution stuff. Right, vendetta. Vendetta stuff. Yeah. Um, I just don't think that, you know, when you listen to her last night, uh, a lot of her attacks on Trump, she didn't put the name Trump in the attack. It was very sort of leading the horse to water, but not making them drink kind of attacks. And I just don't think that's going to work over the long haul in the primaries. It, she, she also jumped to a series of statements uh, that are very moderate um, for the current Republican Party. But again, that's not 
the Republican Party base, right? Talking about, uh, as a South Carolina governor, uh, wanting to expand access to contraception, you're like, okay, well, let's get into some of the details. And do you mean in high school? Do you mean at Planned Parenthood? What does that look like? And that is not a conversation the Republican Party wants to have right now, but it is a conversation that the rising majority of voters and activists is very keenly focused on, which is how does choice, abortion, and healthcare access all connect in this coming election. And David, she also uh, distinguished herself from Trump and DeSantis on the issue of uh, U.S. support for Ukraine. Take a listen. Ukraine has the ability to win, but we have to think bigger than that. And for them to sit there and say that this is a territorial dispute, that's just not the case. To say that we should stay neutral, it is in the best interest of America. It's in the best interest of our national security for Ukraine to win. Now, again, I had I had pointed out quotes from Trump and DeSantis. She just didn't repeat who the she was responding to them. uh, But territorial dispute is DeSantis. Stay neutral is suggested. That's basically what Trump was saying. Does she need to put the names in there? Well, to Jonas, point, I do think at some point uh, the, the electorate just needs clear guidance from a politician about where they stand and how they differ from their opponents. So that that may come. I don't think she wanted all the headlines to be out of this. Uh, she just takes on DeSantis and Trump. I think she was looking to carve out a space for the Haley candidacy in the context uh, of Nikki Haley. I will say she did use foreign policy here. I think perhaps some of her strongest uh, stuff in the town hall to differentiate herself, to carve out a different space and to appeal. There is still a chunk of the Republican electorate, the primary electorate, uh, that is that more traditional foreign policy Republican and not the isolationist wing that Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis are tapping into there. And she wanted to make sure that she had a, a place inside that link. A lot of the House Republicans are like that. You heard Congressman Wenstrup earlier mm-hmm. today talking about the importance of, of, of the fight. Uh, thanks so much uh, to all of you for being here. Appreciate it. Uh, the same day Mike Pence enters this race, he's going to take questions from Republican voters in Iowa at a CNN town hall moderated by my colleague Dana Bash. That's Wednesday night at 9 Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, how a drained pool and a flooded server at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort could play into the special counsel investigation into classified documents. And then Jason Sudeikis and Paul Rudd bringing together celebrities to raise millions of dollars for pediatric cancer research. And they're not alone. But why are movie stars left to do this instead of the federal government? Stay with us. Time for our Law and Justice lead. New exclusive CNN reporting that an employee at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort drained the swimming pool, which resulted in flooding a room where surveillance videos were stored. That's according to sources. This comes to CNN Learned special counsel Jack Smith attended a meeting today with Trump's lawyers here in Washington, D.C. at the Department of Justice. CNN's Evan Perez is with me. Evan, what do we know about this pool incident? It seems a little fishy. (laughs) Well, I think that's one of the things that prosecutors have been focusing on, Jake. They uh, have been asking witnesses about this incident that happened in October. Uh, Sources telling uh, Caitlin Collins and and Caitlin Polans that uh, uh, there was an employee there at Mar-a-Lago who apparently drained the pool and the pool, and it caused a flooding inside a room where uh, there's a server that holds some of the surveillance uh, uh, equipment. And so the, the question that appears to be driving some of this, uh, these que- the, 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 the question I think that prosecutors are raising is whether this was intentional, was this, was this an attempt to try to damage uh, surveillance equipment so that they could not obtain and fill in some of the gaps that they know exist, or whether this was a complete accident. We know uh, that at least some of the testimony they've received said that it didn't damage 
the IT equipment here, but obviously it's something that prosecutors are asking witnesses because they have been focused on whether, the, the, again, part of the picture of obstruction that has uh, been held over this entire investigation. So I guess what's really important here is where this flooding incident occurs in the timeline right? in terms of prosecutors and the FBI and others asking for the documents, asking for any surveillance video, etc. And again, that's, right. that's what drives the suspicions for prosecutors because we know that they had delivered a subpoena before for surveillance video from, again, before the FBI came and did the search. In August, they got another subpoena again after August for more surveillance video. And we also know that they received a a preservation order from the court, again, trying to make sure that nothing was touched uh, when it came to the surveillance uh, footage. Again, because the prosecutors believe that there was an effort to obstruct. Boxes were being moved back and forth. And if you're building a a picture of, of, of obstruction... This is why prosecutors, uh, you know, I think want to make sure they understand everything that was happening. Yeah, and I guess it's significant also whether or not anything was actually destroyed. And it doesn't sound like we know yet. If we don't know. The surveillance right. video. Tell us about Trump's lawyers meeting with Justice Department officials today. What, what do we know about that meeting? Well, they were there for about 90 minutes. Uh, they had requested, if you remember, uh, a few days ago, they sent a letter uh, saying that they believe that there was prosecutorial misconduct on the part of Jack Smith and his team. And they had asked for, an, for, a, for a meeting with... With Mayor Garland, the Attorney General. They did not get that meeting with Mayor Garland or with the Deputy Attorney General. They did meet with uh, the top career official in Lisa Monaco's office. Um, And we do know that Jack Smith, the special counsel, was in the meeting uh, in the end. So we we know that one of the things they wanted to talk about, obviously, was they believed that the, the former president committed no crimes. Um, And so they got to make that point if they wanted to during this meeting. Uh, At the end of it, though, they declined to comment to us. Uh, You can see this there on the the video uh, as they exited the building. All right, uh, Evan Perez, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Also in our Law and Justice lead today, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer and the committee's top Democrat Jamie Raskin today viewed an internal FBI document that some Republicans say and hope will shed light on allegations that then-Vice President Joe Biden was involved in some sort of criminal scheme with a foreign national. Again, this is while he was vice president. This comes as the FBI and prosecutors say they have reviewed the information in the document, but have been unable to corroborate any of the claims in it. CNN Sarah Murray joins us now. Sarah, what might be in this document? And did Chairman Comer and ranking member Raskin say anything after they looked at it? Well, look, Jake, senior FBI officials were on the Hill today where they showed Jamie Raskin and James Comer this document in a skiff in a secure room at the Capitol and sort of briefed them a little bit uh, on what's going on surrounding this document, which again contains these unverified allegations that Joe Biden, while he was vice president, was involved in a bribery scheme, something the White House denies. And when they came out of this meeting, Comer made it very clear that he was not satisfied by the briefing that he received today. He believes that the FBI should have to hand over a hard copy of this document, and he plans to move forward with holding Christopher Wray, the FBI director, in contempt of Congress. Take a listen to what Comer and Raskin had to say as they came out of that briefing. At the briefing, the FBI again refused to hand over the unclassified record to the custody of the House Oversight Committee, and we will now initiate contempt of Congress hearings. I'm just surprised that my colleagues want to try to uh, litigate this in public, much less hold the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in contempt for complying with their request when there was a whole process.
Now, the FBI says the move toward contempt is unwarranted, and there was some disagreement coming out of this briefing about whether this document is still somehow part of an ongoing investigation. Comer said his understanding is it is potentially the ongoing criminal investigation into Hunter Biden. Jamie Raskin said his understanding coming out of this was that the FBI had looked into this, had been unable to corroborate the allegations in it, and essentially had moved on, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Rough waters ahead, the Chinese government is accusing the United States of trying to provoke a military confrontation. We'll show you the near collision that led to the accusation. That's next. In our world lead, more tension between the U.S. and China. Just days after a Chinese fighter jet made an unsafe maneuver close to a U.S. spy plane, a Chinese warship cut across the path of a U.S. destroyer. That was on Saturday. The Pentagon says the U.S. ship had to slow down to avoid a collision. This happened in the Taiwan Strait between the island of Taiwan and mainland China, which the U.S. insists is international waters, even though China claims it is its own territory. CNN's Will Ripley joins us now from Taiwan's capital city, Taipei. Uh, Will, tell us more about what happened and what both sides are saying about the incident. Well, this happened on the Taiwan Strait over the weekend, as you said, Jake, and this is just the latest in a series of incidents uh, between the United States and China that have some in this region and, frankly, around the world worried that this region is spiraling closer to conflict. On Saturday, at the same time that the U.S. Defense Secretary was in Singapore at a defense summit with the Chinese defense minister, uh, this U.S. destroyer and a Canadian warship made a freedom of navigation transit through the Taiwan Strait. The United States does this very often. They say this is international waters. They don't recognize Taiwan as China's territory. Chinese communist rulers have never actually controlled this island. Uh, and yet uh, a Chinese warship essentially cut off the U.S. destroyer coming dangerously close. We're talking about less than 500 feet between these two ships. Had the U.S. destroyer stayed on course at its at actual speed, the two ships would have very likely had a collision, the United States says. But the U.S. ship slowed down basically to a crawl and avoided a collision with that Chinese warship. Now, the U.S. U.S. Defense Secretary speaking at that security summit in Singapore, Lloyd Austin. He talked about how dangerous this situation is. And then, of course, the Chinese defense minister had his own response to why the U.S. was there. Again, the U.S. claims this was just a peaceful passage. Listen. I think uh, accidents can happen that could cause things to spiral out of control. They're not here for innocent passage. They're here for provocation. That was Li Shang-Fu, the general that is in charge of China's defense ministry. And he also, uh, along with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing, called on the United States, they say, to stop these highly provocative actions in their words. Keep in mind, this happened just days after a mid-air incident involving a U.S. reconnaissance aircraft and a Chinese fighter jet that essentially came very close to that U.S. reconnaissance aircraft. It was caught on camera from the cockpit of the U.S. plane. So you have on the sea and in the air these two very close calls, and you have growing concern amongst United States officials, Jake, that this is going to lead to some sort of a miscalculation, a military miscalculation that could have massive consequences. Yeah. Well, Ripley, thanks so much. Also on our world lead today, new indications that Ukraine may be on the brink of its long anticipated counteroffensive against Russia. Much has changed, of course, since Vladimir Putin ordered his troops into Ukraine last year expecting the country to fall in a matter of days. CNN's Fred Plykin just paid another visit to a city that the Russians used as a major staging ground for their invasion of Ukraine, and they found, and he found Russia in a much weaker position than before the war even started. 
Russian military drone video allegedly showing a massive Ukrainian attack in the south of the country. Some vehicles appear to be hitting mines or being the target of indirect fire. The Russians claiming they're able to hold the line. The enemy launched an unsuccessful attempt at a large-scale offensive in the South Donetsk axis, the spokesman for Russia's defense ministry said. But is this already Ukraine's much-anticipated large-scale counteroffensive? The Ukrainians claim they have no info. Kiev put out this video urging people to not even talk about a counteroffensive. Their message plans love silence. But anti-Putin Russian fighters are loudly making their presence felt across the border in Russia's Belgorod region. The local governor is saying hundreds of munitions have been fired at towns there just in the past day. It's a far cry from when we were in this area in February of last year when Russia invaded Ukraine. Belgorod was one of the main staging areas for the attack on Ukraine's northeast. Teeming with tanks and armored vehicles, this military hub seemed invincible. Those streaks that you're seeing up there in the sky, I don't know how we can see exactly right now, you can see more artillery rockets apparently be firing from Russian territory towards the territory, I would say around Kharkiv. I don't know if you can hear this right now. Today, Russia's army appears bizarrely absent, this Russian military blogger dodging for cover in the Shebekino village in the Belgorod region. We are lying in Shebekino on the ground under Ukrainian grad missiles, he says. Strikes are coming one after another. The local governor says the shelling from the Ukrainian side has been relentless, with several killed and wounded and thousands evacuated. The leader of the Wagner private military company ripping into the defense ministry. We surrender our historical lands, he says. Today, children are getting killed. Civilians are getting killed in Belgorod. And the Ministry of Defense is not in a state to do anything at all, as it de facto doesn't exist. It is chaos. And the Russians are also on the back foot in the area Prigozhin's mercenaries just left, Bakhmut in East Ukraine. Moscow's forces struggling to fend off a strong Ukrainian military, both in the occupied territories and inside Russia. So as you can see, Jake, things certainly seem to be going quite well for the Ukrainians on the Bakhmut front. After they almost seem to have lost that city just a couple of weeks ago to the Russian armed forces and, of course, to the Wagner private military company. In fact, now the Ukrainians say they believe the reason why the Russians want to speak so much about the south of the country is because the Ukrainians are beating them around Bakhmut. There was a spokeswoman for the Ukrainian military who came out today and said today was a very good day for the Ukrainian armed forces, Jake. All right, Fred Plaikin and Keith, thank you so much. Coming up, is Apple biting off more than it can chew? The new Apple headset was just unveiled. It does come with a hefty price tag. In our tech lead, Apple is out with a new product, Apple Vision Pro. It's a headset that offers both virtual and augmented realities. It's an experience that could potentially revolutionize the way people interact with computers and the world around them, and it can be yours for nearly $3,500. The ambitious product was unveiled today at Apple's annual developer event in Cupertino, California. CNN's John Sarlin is there. And John, how does this headset work? 
Well, a historic day here at Apple, launching a new product, their first new product since 2015. This is a mixed reality headset. So you might be familiar with virtual reality, a screen on top of your head looking like a ski goggle. Well, this is mixed reality. It's rea the real world overlaid with computer graphics. Apple teased a bunch of different use cases for it. They say it can be a virtual workstation, having multiple screens up, or a home cinema with the screen as big as you want. The big question, though, is will people buy it at the price point? Right now, it's going to be set to be at $3,500. Is there a large appeal, do you think, for a product like this, given the price tag, $3,500? I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of dineros. Right. I mean, that is the big question. So last year, around 8.8 .8 million VR uh, AR headsets were sold. That might sound like a lot, but it's a 21% decline since the year before. This is a shrinking market that Apple is entering. And when you look at the competitive landscape, Apple is banking that they have cracked the code that other tech companies have failed to innovate on. You might remember Google Glass from uh, 2013. Well, that was a similar product that was one of the most infamous tech failures of the past decade. So Apple is banking on two things here. One, that they can convince customers to put a computer on their head. That's something other companies have failed to do. Second is that people will be willing to spend $3,500 for the privilege of doing that. That is a huge question for Tim Cook and Apple. And if I know Apple, they unveiled other products other than this. What else did you see today? Right, so there is a 15-inch MacBook Air that was displayed, and this is the Worldwide Developers Conference. So a whole suite of new products were announced for iPhone, things like easily uh, sending your contact info to another iPhone, including updates to FaceTime that allow va uh, FaceTime voicemail to be sent. All right, John Sarlin in Cupertino, California, thank you so much. Coming up next, just how far star power can go to help save the lives some of America's youngest cancer patients. Stay with us. In our health lead, one in 285 children in the U.S. will be diagnosed with cancer before their 20th birthday. This issue hits close to home at CNN. My colleagues Renee Marsh and Andrew Krasinski both tragically lost their infant children, Blake and Francesca, or beans, to brain cancer. A dear friend of mine, Daryl Kessler, and his wife Alana lost their son, Milo, a sad fact, pediatric cancer research is grossly underfunded by the U.S. government. Grossly. Getting only 4% of the billions of dollars allocated for cancer research. So often, private fundraising groups such as the Big Slick Celebrity Weekend try to make up the difference. Over the weekend, I joined the Big Slick charity event to try to raise some money of uh, millions of dollars, in fact, for sick kids. It'll be chaos from, from the first whistle to the final buzzer. It's an annual event unlike any other. I'm excited to raise a lot of money and a lot of awareness uh, for Children's Mercy. A massive celebrity fundraiser hosted by some of Kansas City's most famous names, all to benefit Children's Mercy Hospital. They are making a difference in the fight against pediatric cancer. That mission is absolutely worthy of time and energy. And this is our hometown. And this place is amazing, so it, I want to support it. And I know these guys and gals do too. What started 14 years ago as a poker tournament hosted by Rob Riggle, Paul Rudd, and Jason Sudeikis is now a weekend filled with more than 40 celebrity guests who schmooze with donors, perform at an over-the-top show, and play softball at the K. 
this year featuring Kansas City Chiefs quarterback and MVP Patrick Mahomes. I mean, honestly, it feels just like a Chiefs football game. Just the elite athleticism out here. Um, but no, it's a lot of fun and doing it for a great cause. So I'm excited to be here. It's been an honor to be a part of the Big Slick for many years. And as is the case every year, the highlight of the weekend nice is visiting the patience of Children's Mercy. I got a 13-year-old, though, so I'm, 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 cool, with, uh, I'm cool with the age. He thinks he is. One highlight came from Sophia. A two-time cancer patient we last saw in 2019 when Zach Levi serenaded her. And it's warm and real. Sophia met us outside the hospital on Saturday to tell us that her cancer is in remission. Pediatric cancer research has long been underfunded by the federal government. In the past, only 4% of the billions of dollars spent annually on cancer research goes towards childhood cancer, leaving private groups such as the Big Slick to step in. How much did we raise? This year, breaking a record, the group raising more than $3.5 million for Children's Mercy Hospital. That means since we started Big Slick, because of tonight and because of all of you, we have raised over $20 million. An honor as always. Uh, But let's talk about this bigger issue here. Joining us to discuss Nancy Goodman. She's the founder and executive director of kidsvcancer.org, kidsvcancer.org. It's an advocacy group calling for more government funding to fight pediatric cancer. And of course, sadly, you were enlisted in this fight because you lost your dear son, Jacob, to cancer, pediatric brain cancer at age 10 in 2009. The, the, the kind of pediatric brain cancer he had in 2009, would the odds have increased if he, had, if he got it today? And Jake, no. You know, for, um, for all our effort, for the big slick you know, fundraising projects and everything we've done at Kids v. Cancer. Um, the kid who gets diagnosed with Jacob's form of medulloblastoma will have the same outcome, which is that he won't make it. So here's the thing. It's so amazing that, that Paul Rudd and Jason Sudeikis and Eric yeah. Stone Street and Rob Riggle and <laughs> Heidi Gardner uh, and David Koechner do this every year. But in a way, they shouldn't have to. The federal government should be funding this. Why is it so underfunded? Is it because Five-year-olds, 10-year-olds don't vote? I mean, what's the reason? Well, look, I think the first problem is that um, the private you know, pharmaceutical and biotech sector, which is a huge and well-resourced and um, uh, sector full of you know, really skilled people, invests about $30 billion a year in the U.S. in cancer research. Mm-hmm. And approximately none of it, less than 0.1% goes to kids. Why? Okay? So it's because they're small markets. It's a hard market to get in and to make a maximum return on investment on. That's not how you make money as a biotech. And so who should be doing it? So the federal government should be doing it, and Congress should be passing laws to enact reforms to address these challenges, okay? So, for example, with respect to Congress, um, you know, five years ago, Congress passed a bill Um, taking the first important step that would provide that new cancer drugs developed for adults were also studied in kids. Right. Okay, so that really funneled um, many, many new drugs towards pediatric cancer research and millions of dollars. Um, And, you know, it did have a profound effect. I mean, the fact is, and Big Slick is fantastic. And, you know, I think it raised $3.5 million. $3.5 million this year, yeah. It's not chump change. It's amazing, right? But... To, to really affect pediatric, to change the landscape, you need not, you know, millions of dollars. You need hundreds of millions of dollars. Or, or billions. Or billions know. of dollars, right? We're competing against billions of dollars in the private sector. 
And, and how has that gap stalled or limited our ability, the ability of the medical professionals and, and, and scientists to, to help these kids? Yeah, there's this crazy disconnect. You know, we get you know, as many stories as we want in our community of you know, little kids dying of cancer and we can get them in you know, front pages of newspapers and there are these very sad, sweet stories and everybody cares. And then somehow, you know, when, we, um, when we go to Congress or when we go to the NCI, Suddenly, it becomes really tough to argue, for example, that we should have federal funding for um, a nonprofit biotech because no for-profit biotech is going to develop some of these cancers, cancer drugs that kids need, right? Why don't, look, we all love kids, right? We all were kids. We all sympathize the most. You hear that a 10-year-old dies like your beloved Jacob, and it's so much more tragic than a 54-year-old named Jacob, right? Why aren't politicians running on this? Why aren't people voting on this? Well, that would be tragic, too, by the way, Jacob. Well, it's, just, it's, just, it's less tragic. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, so right now Congress is considering another bill um, that would reflect the, next, the, the most recent um, scientific understandings in the past five years. So, for example, now scientists understand that it doesn't take one drug, uh, one new drug to find new cures for patients with cancer, that... Scientists need combinations of new drugs, right? But these combinations are only being used for children. So Congress is now considering a bill that would require companies developing combinations for adults with cancer to also study them in children with cancer. Um, Doesn't cost anything, saves kids, bipartisan support, and hopefully Congress will pass the bill. You guys need to do report cards because politicians hate getting Fs. And they love getting A's. Well, do a report card, and I'll and I'll do and I'll and I'll give you your answers. You know what? That would be a great September story, wouldn't it? Yeah. Back to school story. Back to school story. Yeah. Think about it. We that would be a really report fun. card. Who's really good? Who's really bad yeah. on helping kids with cancer? Yeah. I'm just saying. I think that would we be need great. to get a little tougher on this. <laughs> Nancy Goodman, thank you for all you do, and Thanks your so and your much. husband also. Thank you. Coming up next, why the color pink might be hard to find in a hardware store near you. But first, what's coming up in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer? Wolf. Jake, uh, we're going to be joined by a member of the growing Republican presidential field, the former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. With Mike Pence and Chris Christie jumping into the fray this week, I'll ask Hutchinson about his strategy against bigger names in the race, including the clear frontrunner, at least right now, Donald Trump. Will Hutchinson agree to support Trump if the former president is the 2024 nominee? We expect to find out in the next hour. All of that, much more coming up right here in the Situation Room. the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday and so is tomorrow and every day from now until forever. Yeah! A Barbie world without the color pink in our pop culture lead, the upcoming Barbie movie being produced by sister company Warner Brothers. Use so much of the bright colored paint that it apparently led to a global shortage. According to the sure. movie's production designer, quote, the world ran out of pink. And looking at some of the trailer that's been released, well, it's easy to see why. Barbie the film hits theaters July 21st. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite. I'm back on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead scene. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the lead once you get your podcasts. All two hours just sitting there like a giant pink cotton candy display. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Witzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.